0: I mean, imagine being Michael Jordan.
1: I mean that's why the greatest subhead of a book ever is that is Hemingway's boat, Everything He Loved in Life and Lost. Yeah. That's a good. Point. That's true for, for everybody. I mean that's just, you know. What do you do when you used to be able to write like that and you can't anymore?
2: Hi everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. Our guest this week is Wright Thompson, journalist and author. He wrote a book last year called The Cost of These Dreams, a collection of essays old and new. The New York Times wrote of it. Thompson has written some of the most important pieces of contemporary sports journalism, demonstrating unparalleled insight into the lives of the most compelling figures in sports. I'll tell you a little story before we get going. Four years ago, I found some rinky-dink website that had tickets to see Jose Tomas in Mexico City. I wrote to several writers that I didn't know or I hadn't met, really, or spent any time with. Wright was one of them. And I just said, I have a free ticket for you if this is something you'd like to do. And everything fell through. And I had to call Wright, who had signed on to come and say, nobody else is coming. (laughs) Would you still be interested in this? I, I hope it's worth your time. And he said, what are you talking about? you know fuck anybody who doesn't want to go i'll meet you at mexico city and he showed up and we had a couple days together running around mexico city of course he showed up with a private car and a private security agent who was armed to the teeth and you know he can he can drink and he has big appetites and he was so much fun and uh I very much feel like an awkward Canadian straight man to his um, super compelling, funny, energetic, enthusiastic self, and it's one thing I love about this guy is while he is extraordinarily complex and the details and observations and investigative rigor that he applies to his work is second to none, there is a strain of enthusiasm that is totally unadulterated from certain childhood moments that we know, and he carries that through to who he is now at 44. And uh, I think you get a whiff of that in this conversation and certainly in his writing. And there's just a, a wonderful spirit there that's fun and uh, warm and generous. He, he knows he occupies a lane and it allows him to be able to spread some of that spirit to, to those around him and in the brief moments I've spent with them, I certainly felt that and enjoyed it, and it was a pleasure, so I, as was this interview. So I hope you enjoy it. Right, Thompson?
3: I, I had listened to a number of interviews with you just researching this, and yes. I have not heard much about you as a little kid growing up in Oxford, and uh, your parents, that
1: kind of thing. Can you walk, can we start there? do a little yeah. david copperfield yeah well i uh i was born actually in clarksdale mississippi which is a farming town about an hour from here if you i mean it's you know home of the delta blues it's uh it was a real hub of the mississippi delta uh muddy waters is from there sam cook is from there nate dog is from there rick ross is from there john lee hooker uh You know, from it's just an incredible – Tennessee Williams is from there. Actually, the house next to the house where I grew up is where uh, the founder of the town lived, and his daughter, who was friends with Tennessee later in life, uh, was named Blanche. I mean, these are all real people. (laughs) And so – but, yeah, I'm from Clarksdale, Mississippi, and uh, my mother is from – a little town about 20 minutes away called Shelby, Mississippi. And my dad is from uh, south of us, a tiny little town called Bentonia. Both of them grew up in farming families and uh, in very, very small towns.
0: What did your parents do?
1: My mom was a – it's funny. uh, Because when you say it out loud, you're like, well, that's a pretty great combination for – a journalist, my mom was a high school English and creative writing teacher, and my dad was a trial lawyer
4: mm-hmm.
1: and then you know my dad was a uh, was really political uh was you know big uh democratic party uh local state and national big national fundraiser and so we were always it was always a house full of big ideas and just really full of books. I mean, I remember I got mono uh, or something, strap mono when I was uh, in high school, and I was out of school for like three weeks. And I just, all I did was read through these books in the house. I mean, it was just a house full of books. Yeah. And opera music. I was thinking about that the other day. Uh, but yeah, just, I just, I remember my dad had this great stereo. So it was a lot of opera and a lot of Motown.
3: Do you know how they met? Do you know how they fell in love and that got yeah. started?
1: The uh, my mom's brother was friends with my dad in college. My mom went to Vanderbilt. My dad went to Ole Miss, and so she was. They were. She was visiting uh, her brother. I think she was just home from Vanderbilt. They just graduated, and they met. And when,
3: when I mean, it's interesting you're saying about the mono. There's a lot of. Writers, artists who had a period of time where they were bedridden—that I think really profoundly forged them in some way. I wasn't
1: bedridden as much as I was contagious, but I did have
4: a—I
1: <laughs> did have a period of. It was—I mean, it was the best month of my life. My God, I hated school. <laughs> but uh, I mean, all I wanted to do was read the stuff I wanted to read, and not the stuff they wanted me to read. You know, I, I mean, I, it's when I read *North toward Home* by Willie <laughs> Morris, which was really important book for me. Uh I mean I I I didn't really know I had no plan. I had no vision of of or for myself. Uh I guess I just sort of thought that I would go to law school and come back and run the family farms or, you know, work at my dad's you know, take over the farm. I don't really know. I mean just I hadn't really thought about it. And then I read that book by Willie Morris, who was the editor of Harper's, and it was just about that kind of life. And it really, I mean, I was chasing the life as much as anything, you know. I mean, it was, I mean, that really happened then. Uh, It's when I was like, okay, I'm going to go to journalism school. I mean, it's, you know, a plan was born.
4: Hmm.
3: And you're kind of part of the last generation, I'd imagine, with, Anything like probably what you were dreaming about can never happen again. Do you think that's true? I don't know, but it, it's definitely a, in danger. I mean, it's really, really hard to make a living at it. Or, I mean, how many of these places are shuttering up right now? I mean, it's interesting because,
1: and like, I'm I'm way out over my skis here because, like, you know, if I really knew about the economics of this more than someone else. I would be very, very wealthy, you know, like if I, you know, this is just, this is like people talking about sports. If you really knew what the fuck you were talking about, you'd be Bill Belichick, right? (laughs) There's a reason you're the asshole sitting behind me in the football stadium. There's a reason you're not on the sideline. And it's not just that the world unfairly denied (laughs) you the chance to display your football genius. It's because you don't know what you're talking about. So with all of that said, I feel like business models come and go, Right. And people, since the dawn of time, have been hungry for stories, stories in which they learn about the world, stories in which they learn about themselves, and when you really, really hit the trifecta when you do both, right? That's when when the magic's happening. Uh, When you're both learning a wild, crazy, unknown story and yet also realize you're reading about yourself, that's like, you know, that's, that's the good stuff. I just don't like people are going to be into that and it might not be even in the form that, you know, you and I work in, uh, who knows what it'll look like, but I just don't believe fundamentally that the desire to hear and see these stories is going to change and therefore somehow there will be people making them. I mean, like, you know, for all the talk of attention spans, I mean, people watch will binge 15 hours of television in a weekend. I mean, sure. it's, it's not like you know <clears throat> Anyway, I'm very hopeful. And, you know, I don't know, you know, the big high-paid magazine writer world might be ending, but I don't think that, uh, you know, I don't think that, that the people who want to tell these stories or the people who want to hear them will somehow be denied an intersection because the economics of one particular business isn't great right now. You know, I mean, I don't know if that's total bullshit or not. I mean, maybe that's just something you have to tell yourself. But, like, I just think think people are called to tell stories and people are called to hear them. And everything else is just delivery.
3: I don't think any of that's wrong. I just I think just in terms of an analogous business model, would be like pornography. Nobody is less interested in watching people fuck. It's just you don't have to pay for it anymore. And that has a massive cataclysmic consequence on that industry where before Pornhub or RedTube or these kind of things, this was bigger than sports and Hollywood combined, and now it's nothing. Like, I mean, nobody's paying for it. But except that except that
1: you know people are still paying for storytelling they're just paying for really good storytelling
4: mm-hmm.
1: you know i mean you know if you're directing really successful movies you're still flying around on an airplane that you will <laughs> i
3: i just you know, I mean if if you were coming out of j, j school right now and you're $150,000 in debt, and you're looking to find work to pay that off and potentially buy a home. The difference between that guy today and when you did it
1: is night and day, isn't it? It's, it's, it, yes. I mean, the real difference to me is that, you know,
0: there are a bunch of, I mean, the actual work of
1: journalism, right, isn't, it's not. Me writing a profile about Michael Jordan. It's someone who is deeply plugged into the St. Louis, Missouri, uh, local politics, who understands what's really going on behind the scenes. Who knows? Who knows? Who really has power on a school board? Who knows? You know what the major fundamental differences in motivation are between the president and the vice president? Who understands when someone's term ends in two years? What that means? for the parents of school children and for the taxpayers. Like, those are the jobs that are getting whacked. And those are – that is the vital role of uh, – I mean, that's what I really worry about, is yeah. that is that, you know, it is hard work to really know the motivations and the, the actual politics of a board of aldermen or of a uh, county board of supervisors – you know, uh, who's going to vote what and why? Like, you know, what, who really controls local political machine? I mean, those are the kind of things that you only learn if you just are deeply embedded in the place.
4: Right, uh, right.
1: I mean, that's you know, and there used, you know, there used to be, you know, I keep talking about St. Louis. I don't know why today. I guess it's because I'm fiending for some Ted Drews ice cream frozen <laughs> custard sorry anyone listening from St. Louis Jesus Christ uh, but you know there were four people who covered every protein. Co- you know there was just there were a lot more jobs and as we all know the people who do the hiring are rolling dice at best I mean how many times have you ever talked to a hiring person at a place and realized they have no idea what makes someone good at this or not so like just the the more people you can get in the building, the more chance you have for someone to show themselves as really good. And so, like, that's the, you know, that's where the contra- that's where, like, you know, Gary Smith started out for the Philadelphia Daily News. What did he cover, the Eagles or the Phillies or something? Yeah. You know? I mean, like, like those are the, I mean, that's the real sort of worry is that you're just, you know, there are just less jobs. And by the way, I'm a little, it's interesting, college students talk to me about how to get jobs. And I feel like seven years ago, I had really good advice. And now I don't. I feel like I don't know the answer, you know. And God, it kind of makes me feel like my parents, you know. I'm just like, God, am I that old and out of touch? But, like, I don't know the answer, you know. I have no idea, you know. I went to visit... uh I used to work for the Kansas City Star. I had I, I loved it and still love it. I mean, I, you know, Mike Fannin, who was my boss there, now runs the whole paper. It's fabulous, and it's just you know had a profound impact on my life. He's very, we're still very close. And so, I was in Kansas City a couple years ago, eighteen months ago, uh, with Sonia, and we were visiting people. And so, I just went in to spend the day. Went in to see Mike in the newsroom. We we're going to go have lunch, and the newsroom was real young, and it was real, it felt real vibrant and and made me realize that any opinions I have to offer about what it might be like to work for the Kansas City Star are not based in any sort of reality about what it's currently like to work at the Kansas City Star,
4: you know? Mm-hmm. I mean,
1: so, like, I don't know what it feels like to be in a newsroom right now. I haven't been in a newsroom in a very, very long time.
3: When did you start there at the Kansas City Star?
1: i started there in late july of 2002. no maybe late august 2002.
3: 2002 so 85 years after hemingway first
1: got a job there yes uh we use the same computer system i think Well, what do you, I mean, what was
3: what was Wright Thompson's perspective of where he was headed after getting that
4: job
1: as a, a young whippersnapper? I mean, I was both convinced that I was going to be the greatest thing since sliced bread and also terrified that that wasn't true. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I was not super well adjusted, you know. I mean, but I realize, I mean, I loved that crew with the paper, but we were just hard-working, big, eating, 3 a.m., hard drinking. I mean, it was just, I mean, it was, you know, it was like the movies. (laughs) uh, But I just loved that crew. I loved downtown Kansas City then. We had, you know, uh, we we just, it was just great. I mean, I just really loved it.
3: Well, when you said that you you had, it sounds like, pretty lofty ambitions from from the get-go. Was that towards journalism or was it towards books? I mean, were there were there big books that really inspired you that you were sort of, I don't know if competing against is the right word, but, like, I want to touch on it later, but I remember when we were in Mexico City, you talking about how much Richard Ben Kramer's profile on Ted Williams had oh, an yeah. impact on you. So I wonder, what were some of those articles for you and some, some books also and and what was, I guess, helping to forge your ambitions going forward as a, you know, twenty-five, twenty-six-year-old in Kansas City at this time?
1: Well, I mean, I just wanted to write one of those things. I mean, Richard Ben Ted Williams, or uh, you know, Michael Paterniti's Eating Jack Hooker's Cow, or Tom you know, it's Falling Man. Like it, it, it wasn't books. It was just like as much as, you know, I just would like to go to... To do one of those stories, I don't know. I mean, certainly the Richard Ben Kramer one was the was a north star. Uh, there are lots of, them. I mean, and it, so it was much more like I want to be really great at this one particular thing. Like it was the, you know, I felt like, and you know, the book thing is just happening now, and it's because, well, for a lot of reasons. But I mean, no, I, I was much more focused on trying to do this one thing really well, to be, you know, try to be really great at this one strange minor genre, you know, the the literary magazine story, whatever the fuck that means.
3: Well, obviously, I mean, you, you did that amazing story on uh, Ted Williams' daughter, kind of as a, <laughs> a very interesting addendum to his piece. I wonder what that was like in terms of uh I mean, did you ever know Richard Ben Kramer? did you have an opportunity I to i didn't you didn't well what was it like sort of following up to some degree on on that profile that that had such an impact on you uh,
1: well, I mean I felt like i don't know like i didn't I didn't get intimidated out of the batter's box, you know I felt like <laughs> like you know. I think mine stacked up pretty well. It was a pretty good feeling. Uh, I mean, I don't know if anyone else would agree or disagree. I have no idea, but I, I'd, I didn't.
4: He wasn't in my head at all,
1: which was surprising. Well,
3: and I, I mean, I, I could be wrong about this, but it seemed like your profile of Michael Jordan turning fifty for a lot of people sort of that that is for you what what Ted Williams was for for Kramer. I don't know if you see it that way, but I, I wonder, I just hmm. remember that just being everywhere, everywhere. And I know a lot of your pieces have, have get passed around and have that impact, but I don't remember it quite being on the same level as that Jordan at 50. And the way you composed it, the angle that you took, and the access was just so unexpected. So I wonder if we could just spend a little time dropping into that, well,
1: it's funny It's funny you bring that up about the Jordan and the Richard Ben Kramer. I mean, I don't know if I've ever thought of it exactly like that before, but, I mean, it's certainly... Let me put it this way. Uh, because, one, you can't compare pieces and, you know, really pieces, pieces that last are idiosyncratic, and there are all sorts of things at play. I will say that I felt really free after that
4: Hmm.
1: like I don't remember the timeline but I think that I had a pretty good run of stories after that because I just it's hard to explain but I just felt really unshackled I don't know I mean I just was proud that I had gotten I had talked myself into the room and had what I thought was a like a really good handle on all of it, and then I just didn't choke, so like everything <laughs> after not choking felt like gravy, but like I just was proud that like you only get so many swings at some shit like that, you know, and you don't I didn't fuck it up, so i was I don't know that was really confidence building
3: do you remember do you remember what the real kernel was where you were like, yeah. This is the pitch ladder. Like this is the right angle to take. Do you remember the thread in there that really yeah. felt right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh
1: I I remember the story that prompted the Jordan story.
4: Hmm. Uh
1: the New Yorker ran a story, a profile of Paul McCartney entitled When I'm Sixty
4: Four.
1: Hmm. I was just like, Imagine being Paul McCartney and being sixty four fucking years old and trying to make the best <laughs> of your life. Yeah. Google. I was in the Beatles. Now I have to wake up in the middle of the night to go pee. What happened? Do you know what I mean? Like, and he, I probably bus- he, he probably
3: wrote it. He probably wrote it when he was like twenty-five or something, too.
1: Yeah, like it must have just seemed like when I'm a hundred and forty, you know. Right. And so, right. Uh, I was immediately just like, "Well, that's it." I mean, I referenced that story in the pitch letter.
4: Huh.
1: I mean, I was just like, "Look, I'm like," and and I, I talked about the universality of it in the pitch letter because I was just like. If you're my parents' age and Paul McCartney's 64, it means you are ancient. Right. And so right. That, the idea that Michael Jordan is 50 means we're all going to die, buddy. <laughs> I mean, that's really what the story's about, is that we're all dying. Right. And, and that none, none of it matters. Uh, so, like, I mean, that, I remember that very clearly.
3: Well, and and, I mean, it seems like a big thread for you in a lot of stories, the way you gain so much purchase on these people is, it, is this connection you have with your own father, and, and I don't know if it's projecting it onto others, but understanding how other people might have as profound a connection. Now, obviously, we all have a pretty profound connection with our parents or the absence of them, but I wonder if you could just speak to that. I've never really heard you asked about that directly, um, just yeah, how how much he looms over you and and your work. Well, it's
1: interesting because, I mean, I don't... I'm very conscious about not projecting it, but what it does do is I have spent a lot of time thinking about impact of fathers and family and home and land on me Mm -hmm. that
0: I feel like I feel like
1: it's going to sound weird. I feel like it has less to do with the construction of the story and more to do with the construction of the questions that lead to the story. Hmm. Okay. Does that make sense? I mean, it's just much more to me about understanding that people carry this shit deep inside, and it often bubbles to the surface. and manifest manifest itself in your actual day-to-day life in interesting ways, and that, you know, in many ways, life is one long communion. And so, like, I feel like I'm aware that people live their lives like that, and so that I'm always looking for it. I don't think that just because someone's famous doesn't mean that they don't have the exact same experience of being a human being on this planet that we all do. Yeah. And so like I'm just I'm fishing for it when I'm asking him questions.
3: Can you feel that that line with people? Like I, I talked to S. L. Price not long ago about Jordan and about being somebody who knew him before he was Jordan and interacting with him before he was Jordan. And he said every time Jordan sees him, there's a look of recognition that you knew me before
1: this. That's, That's interesting. interesting. I mean I feel like uh That is really interesting. I mean I I didn't know that about Scott, but uh
3: both in North Carolina, both same age.
1: Is that fucking true? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's unbelievable.
3: I know. No, it's 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 an amazing aspect of him <laughs> that's very intriguing. Like I I every time I see him I kind of it, it, it's hard not to think about it a little bit.
1: Holy shit, I didn't know that. The, uh, I mean, it's interesting because, uh, you know, a guy I work with at ESPN, John Dahl, who is the, uh, the behind-the-scenes maestro behind, I mean, a lot of stuff you like, uh, but Last Dance, you know, he was at North Carolina with Jordan and covered him for the student newspaper. And I think John has had some similar experiences with Michael. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, imagine being Michael Jordan. I can't imagine, imagine having been Michael Jordan. I mean, that's why the greatest subhead of a book ever is that is Hemingway's boat, everything he loved in life and lost. Yeah, that's good. That's just true for, for everybody. I mean, that's just you know, what do you do when you used to be able to write like that and you can't anymore? Well,
3: yeah.
0: Is that a big theme for you?
3: Loss, death—is that always? I'm
1: not death.
3: I'm not. No, I mean
1: movement through person
0: movement through time in your own life is interesting.
1: Inflection points. I mean, it's like you know some people are really obsessed with death. When I mean, you read those, that's not my thing. I mean, I'm much more obsessed with. I'm like right now, it changes. I mean, right now, I'm really obsessed with sort of historical levers that cause people to do things that they don't even really understand the forces at work in their actions.
4: Hmm.
0: Like, I'm really into that right now. Uh,
1: you know, you talked about history of flight. I mean, I was, I wanted that to be a story of. I mean, essentially what that is, is the story of one piece of land four times. I mean, if you really look at it. And so I was interested in the sort of what – the multitude that Jordan carries inside of him. Sort of how you cannot – if you just view Michael Jordan as if he – if you view Michael Jordan as if his life began the night he made that shot in the Superdome, in North Carolina, or when he took off from the foul line, or when he first hugged that trophy, then you have no shot of actually seeing him at all.
3: Where do you? Where did you see him? Where, when you look at, when you shine your light at him, where do you see him living? I mean
1: when I I just think the 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 key to understanding Michael Jordan is to is Highway 117. I actually have the map on my desk right now. Yeah. Highway 117 runs up uh Skipper's Corner, Hassel Castle Hain, Rocky Point, say Burgow, up to Wallace and Titchy, like Holly Shelter Swamp and Angola Swamp. I mean it's just sort of a diamond of land bracketed by 117 on the west by the boundary of the Holly Shelter swamp on the east by Highway 17 on the south and say up there to what's that? Like, Mm. whatever that, Highway 41 uh, around there. I mean, like, that's where Michael Jordan comes from. I mean, five, six generations in that small piece of land. And, like, you know... Anyway, I'm just really into the idea that we are that we are always everyone who came before us.
3: Yeah, that's an interesting idea. I definitely I know what you mean about the the sense of communion. I often think when I'm in a jam, how did my grandfather with four kids navigate the depression? How did he yeah. how did he deal with his son at 16 having a tree fall on his head in front of him and load that body into the back of his truck and drive two hours thinking of what to say to his wife about dealing with this. I mean, just, I had never
1: confronted any problem remotely close to that. No, 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 no. I mean, it's just crazy. Like, you know, we
0: are very soft. As a people, uh, in some sense. I mean, in other ways,
1: we deal with things that are that they couldn't have even imagined. I mean, the emotional turmoil of the inability to control your reputation sort of driven by social media. I mean, things that, you know, people used to have fucking duels over their reputation <laughs> not that long ago. <laughs> no, but, like, I, you wrote a nasty letter to the editor about someone and they shot you, they didn't go to jail. That's not that
4: long ago. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, like,
1: that's really not that long ago. And so, you know, the threat of physical violence, I mean, you just couldn't say some shit to somebody or about somebody because they would beat your ass. Yeah. And so, I mean, you know, so yes, there's a way in which we're much softer than our ancestors. But, you know, we also are dealing with things that they just couldn't even fathom. I mean, it's interesting. Multiple things can be true at the same time.
3: Do you think that there's there's a distinction that I heard raised once about the movie Boyhood? Did you see that, that Richard Linklater film? Well, so they, I think you know the premise. Of I know that. what it is, yeah. They spent whatever it was, five years old to 17 and coming in every six months to, to get some footage of this kid. But I heard somebody put it in a way that I thought was really interesting that seems to dovetail a little with what you're saying, which is all of Linklater's films This one more pronounced, but all of them really are focused on two things about the experience of being alive, is how we move through time and how time moves through us. And I'm not quite sure what that distinction is, but I do—I am aware there is a distinction between those two things. Well, I mean, what's interesting,
1: uh, well, one, my editor, Jake Leventer, used to always say, the myth of transference. Like, just because it felt some way to you to be there doesn't mean it feels that way. sort of like filming over ten years, doesn't that defeat the whole purpose of acting? (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, isn't that the whole point? That, like, you're able to tell a story with people able to channel? Like, I don't know. But, no, I mean, Days to Confused. my God. You know, I mean, that's – that movie is all about those two things how you move through time and time moves through you. You know, what, what let me tell you, Melba toast here is packing, we got four eleven with track positrack outback, seven fifty yeah. double pumper Edelbrock <laughs> intakes. Something, 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 eleven to one pop up pistons, we're talking some fucking muscle,
4: whatever yeah. that is.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, I mean uh, smoking the joint at the fifty yard line, that whole movie is about that. That whole movie is boyhood. Right. Uh it's interesting. What? Party of the Moon Tower. Everybody's gonna be there. Oh,
3: it's amazing, and the fact that it's just one day with no plot on top of it. I mean, Jesus. But I, but I want to know how you get at with Jordan. Like, I mean, the first article, the two eighteen, the the that his wife never saw him at two hundred eighteen pounds. That if he just got to two eighteen, he could be back out there. It was like. It was like Achilles if he wasn't killed in Troy.
1: Yeah, he's just like, if I could just get back out there. I mean, I think it
4: started,
1: <laughs> I think it started with me making fun of him for being fat because he huh. just got off of his vacation. Like, goddamn, man. He was big. I mean, when he was, not really, but he'd just been drinking a lot of tequila and had that post vacation bloat glow. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, I don't remember what it was. But I mean, stuff like that always comes from just treating them like you would treat your friend. It's like, mm. God damn, man. Eating a bunch of ribeyes, drinking a bunch of tequila, huh? Huh. Or just probably a joke. How much weight you put on that boat, dude? You know, I don't remember, honestly, what got it. But I'm sure it was something like that.
3: Was he touchy? or what? I mean, I heard him say, at least I saw it printed somewhere, that he publicly said, my ambition in retirement is to get a gut. And I was just like, whoa. Because it's it's disturbing to look at Michael Jordan in Last Dance sitting there and the paunch is there and just being like, no, this cannot happen. Uh, he could get rid of that paunch in
1: seven days if he wanted. I'm sure he uh, could. Uh, no, Michael Jordan isn't touchy about anything. Mm, that's unexpected. huh? No, dude, he's he's down for, like, he's ready to go. I think he just, I don't know, I'm making this part up, or I'm guessing, but I think he just assumes if you've made it through all the layers, if you're here, let's go.
4: Hmm.
3: Were you, what were your feelings when you looked at Last Dance? It's received a bit of pushback for him having editorial oversight. So it's kind of like cops, where the police get to sign off on everything that's on it and be like, It's not entertainment, it's reality, but
1: yeah, is it? Well, look, I mean, I'll say a couple, I mean, one, I mean, Jordan's people probably had, I don't know the whole process, but, I mean, there's no way Michael Jordan was watching screeners. (laughs) I mean, that if you know him at all, that idea is fucking laughable. Huh, It's interesting. There's just no way, the guy, there's just no way. I mean, I would be stunned if that happened. Uh, I mean, I was, you know, I think think there are all sorts of legitimate conversations you can have about what could and couldn't have appeared on the screen. And I, you know, if we could do that for days. But what was on the screen, I'll tell you, I mean, I couldn't turn away. And frankly, frankly, because, uh, let me just say this. Having done a lot of Jordan stuff before, I, you know, I want my thing to be the best thing, right? I think we all do that. So, mm-hmm. like, if anyone was going to watch it and tear it to shreds, it was going to be me.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: And I I couldn't turn away. I mean, you know, it was the middle of the pandemic. I think people forget my neighbor, Ray Hill, who lives two doors down, who's one of my best friends in the world. The only thing time we got together – for that, and that's, you know, the only person I saw was on Sunday nights when Ray would wear uh, a mask over, walk through my house, and we'd go sit on my back deck where I have a television and watch it. And, like, you know, God, Michael Jordan made people forget about the Tiger King. You know, like,
4: that guy is just <laughs> gone. I hope
1: everybody involved in that made as much money as they could because that shit is over. And yeah. it was just like, I don't know, like, I, I really liked The Last Dance. I mean I, I uh I just couldn't turn away. Yeah, it was it was fat.
3: Is there another is there another version of that, you know, like not focusing on that one year? Like why do you think Jordan at this time signed off on it?
1: Well, I think probably in his competitive heart of hearts he is deeply afraid that LeBron James is going to make people forget him. Mm. Uh, I also think that you know he does like to be a ghost, uh, and I don't know why he did it.
3: I wonder for Michael from the time that you spent with him, and I'd like to hear if if you're open to it, kind of the behind the scenes stuff, the cutting room floor material of just hanging out with Jordan and. What you arranged because I mean i haven't I've done that a few times, Roy Jones Jr and a few guys, but not not Jordan um, but I wonder for Jordan what Kobe's death must have been like, because, as you pointed out, Jordan said it a lot, he always thought he was going to die young, and here is this somebody who idolized him the way Kobe did that that's what happened in such an odd, shocking way. I wonder how he metabolized that.
1: You know, it's interesting. I don't know. I know it hit it very hard. I mean, because I know I still keep in touch with people close to Michael. Uh, You know, the cutting room floor is – it's hanging out in a sports bar with your buddies. I mean, one point he looked at me and was like, who are the best five players active in the NBA? And I'm like, why could you possibly fucking care what my opinion is about this? (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like –
0: uh, you know in terms of what
1: I had set up I mean it was we'll get you in front of them and everything else is up to you mm. there was no none of it was set up I mean it was all just sort of try to hang in and hang in and hang in and see how long you could make it run it's actually maybe the best rapport I've ever had with anyone I went to do a story like that with right away Pretty quick, pretty quickly. I mean, I spent more time with him than nearly anyone in a, on the first, like in a, in a
0: in a row. You know. How long was it
1: in total? Uh, I mean, the first day was thirteen hours, fourteen yeah, hours. Was, wow. 12, I, I mean, a long fucking time. <laughs> uh, he's fun to hang out with. Separate from the fact that he's Michael Jordan.
4: And
3: he has to um, be that anytime he's outside. Anytime he's not in a car or, you know, at home, um, he's
1: see, that. No, the, I think he's that when he's sleeping. Oh, That's a, that, No, I think he's, I don't think he's turning it on and off. I think he is the rare human being who flourishes being completely himself.
4: Hmm.
1: Like, when you think about, you know, I mean, this is a Oversimplification, but like, you know, one of the big problems with Tiger Woods is that the people who marketed him and that built his brand went off of the only available playbook, which was the Michael Jordan playbook. And the problem is, of course, that Michael Jordan is an extreme extrovert, and Tiger Woods is an extreme introvert.
4: Huh.
1: And it like broke something. I don't know. I mean, but like, no, I don't. I don't think Michael finds it difficult at all to be Michael Jordan. Hmm. Like that part of no, that you know what's the wrong way of putting it. There's not that much difference between the public and private Michael Jordan. Oh, huh. I mean,
3: you know, it's interesting. That's interesting. What's no, interesting like I, too, because it reminds me of like like you were saying about using Paul McCartney as a a comparative basis a little bit to frame what you were doing. And Paul McCartney's another one. Like he doesn't seem strained by celebrity. He doesn't no. seem like it's been horrible or he's bitching about it. I'm not saying he, he's enjoyed it all the time, but he, there's something about the way he takes it in stride that is not Britney Spears, is not Michael Jackson. <laughs> no, it's
4: no, it's,
1: no, it's interesting. I mean,
3: it's, it's very, very interesting.
0: And he does seem to
1: have a pretty good handle on being Paul McCartney.
3: He does, right? I mean, same with Paul Newman. Paul Newman's another one, you know, he's married forever and gives all this money to charity, does it quietly. Everybody says he was a good friend. Like, where's the where's the strain of being the biggest movie star in the
1: world for decades? I think it, I think mostly, you know, there's that uptight quote, the mask eats the face. Mm. I just think it's... The further the difference between the version of you that exists in the public imagination and the version of you that exists to yourself, the greater the risk is of you getting trapped on the other side of the of the canyon, probably. Hmm. I mean, the closer you are to who you are, probably the better chance you have of emerging relatively unscathed.
3: Hmm. Well, let me ask you then.
1: I I, want to get to
3: Tiger Woods, too, because that is a really fascinating profile for a number of reasons. But when you and I went to see Jose Tomas in Mexico City. Which, by the way,
1: can we just not talk about Tiger Woods and talk about Jose Tomas? Absolutely. Because that was, like, that was my friend Joe, who still talks about that. Joe's the best. But, like, I was in Mexico City uh, uh, in January. And uh, I went back to the taco. Like, I, I went and hit all our spots. Oh, nice. Uh, Cotabonga. Like, all of the, dude, uh, that was one of the great trips for me ever. Oh, that's nice to hear. Well,
4: that for people crazy. who don't
3: know, yeah. I, I found a weird website, a weird Mexican website. It's not weird because it's Mexican. It was weird because it was weird. That said, Jose Tomas, that when the tickets become available at 1201 a.m., you can buy a maximum of six of them. So I bought six tickets for about 30 bucks and then almost instantly they were completely sold out and selling for hundreds or thousands of dollars. And I wrote to a number of people that I said, you can get there. I would love to share this with you. And Wright was one of them who showed up. Um, But, it it was so much fun to think that you've seen all of these things, and I remember you looking over as we did not have good seats. I'm not claiming that, like we had nosebleeds, but as we're looking down at this 130 pound Spaniard walking out into the largest bull ring in the world, fl- filled the capacity. You were like, "This is one of the funnest things I've ever seen."
1: It was incredible. God, that was in the middle of the Tiger Woods reporting.
3: Well, that's what, that's why I brought it up, is because. As we're going to this fight, which is a big deal in Mexico City, they are hugely celebrating El Chapo, but Jose Tomas is a brutal murderer of bulls. That was a weird thing that the city was going through in terms of schizophrenia. Um, But you are simultaneously, while we're enjoying the food and drinking and stuff like that, you are reporting on Tiger Woods by tracking his private plane all over the place. and oh, yeah. we, we were doing that on my phone in the stands. Yes, that's, that's, that's absolutely true. So, yeah, that's why I brought it up originally. But, I mean, the other thing, which I will never forget, is the last time I have had a hangover was with you drinking this mezcal stuff. Oh, I, I wake up ready for death. I don't drink. We drank a lot of this stuff. You were like four pictures of it. I trek nearly throwing up past all of the fried meat and everything, all those great street, street food stands are everywhere, to get to the Four Seasons Hotel to discover you seated in like the Garden of Allah or the fuck it was in the courtyard with the Sunday Times, uh, Romeo and Juliet cigar, I think two pots of coffee and two plates of bacon looking so fresh. It was just like, like Minnesota fats in the
1: hustler. Yeah, Don't fuck with me. me. I was ready to go to the (laughs) bullfight.
3: You're ready to go. And I'm like, I'm ready to die. I'm ready to check into the hospital. And you're like, let's go. And within two hours, you're like, you know, I could use a little nibble of something. How is this man possible? He's not performing. This is just, this is just a, a fucking weekend. How did he do this?
1: No, dude, we were we were going strong. By the way, <laughs> do you remember that crazy weird party we went into the the like bullfight hospitality before the bullfight across the street? Yeah, like it was
3: everybody in Mexican society that somehow you got us into.
1: No, but like the thing I remember is we were sitting at that round table eating and drinking beers. That's the first time I ever said the tiger story out loud to someone.
3: Oh, interesting. I didn't like know
1: how that. it was going to go. Because Joe York was sitting there, and Joe's a huge golf nut.
4: Hmm.
1: And so it was the first time I sort of laid out what eventually became the arc of it, I think. Interesting. I just want to know what
3: that was like and what response there was from the man himself, because that was an undressing of somebody. Not that it had a negative intent, but... That was like the Jordan thing in, in the holy shit kind of way. How did Wright do
1: this? Well the you know, the reaction was interesting. Uh there was none. none. And I heard later. I heard later that uh I had been on I was on SportsCenter or one of those shows basically almost defending Tiger. Someone was like 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 he owed fans something as opposed to just living his life. And I was like, man, he doesn't owe anyone anything. And someone later told me that Tiger was on his airplane that day watching me defend him against whoever it was. And I was just like, mm. so weird. Uh, you know, I've never met Tiger Woods, right?
4: Never I mean, met, him. met him. No, I
1: didn't I've know. met him, but I've never, like, not really, you know? Like, so I just have always imagined Tiger must be at home, like, there's that son of a bitch again! Wow. Like,
4: <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> like I just
1: always imagine he'd be like this motherfucker. <laughs>
3: Leave me alone. <laughs> like,
1: this is he always, like anyway. I just always imagined he must just be like watching SportsCenter in his bike, you know, his gym at home. He'd be like, God, this son of a bitch again. Anyway, uh, but like again, that's like Zen is butts and seats. That's just. Months and months and months and months of phone calls. Really? Okay. I mean, that's all it is. It's just, you know, the style of reporting, which is, I'm going to call every human being you've ever met. Did you find anybody there that was sort of your
3: holy shit moment of how did I get this person? I mean, there are 20 of those. I couldn't believe
1: 20 it. 20 of you know, huh. I mean, it was just like, you know, because I just did sort of, all right, he was here. Now, who all would have... You know, okay, he was fishing, all right? That means there would have been a captain. That means there would have been a guide. That means there would have been a mate on the... Like, you know, it was all of that. Let me find everyone who was there. He's scuba diving. Who puts air in the tanks? You know? Well, and all, somebody,
3: somebody like him compared to Jordan also, because I think you're right, that it was like he was cookie-cuttered into Jordan's identity, but it's like he's fucking porn star. I mean, I don't know if Jordan... Cheated on Juanita. I've not really heard much about that. It didn't seem like he was out there running around a lot. I mean, I know a lot of these guys at that level, they do, and it can be discreet. But Tiger, when that was all disclosed, I mean, like, I mean, it was a whole episode of South Park of of his wife beating him.
1: (laughs) Dude, I forgot about that episode of South Park.
3: Which is amazing.
1: (laughs) What what do you think those guys – I want to read a profile about their lawyers – how do they get away with it? Or just like, because you know it's all buttoned up. You know that it's like they're ready.
3: I mean, they went after Scientology, man, like way before anybody else did. They did an entire expose
1: of it. I know. I mean, I just wonder if, like, you know, if who like, who airs it? Does, is, is it still, I mean, I wonder if, like, I just would love to know what their contract negotiations include about indemnification, like a part of the deal. For broadcasting south park is that you have to defend all of these lawsuits like i just wonder what all of that is
3: oh they must i mean i don't understand how they get away with any of it i mean if you look at, i mean using the n-word i mean they go after every single taboo subject and do it well, in such prob- an
1: that's probably yeah. how they get away with it because I mean, at some point like everyone realizes well no one's ever sued them in one you know you're probably, yeah, it's like the tobacco industry. You're probably right, and they're also just
3: like, it's fucking South Park. It's an institution. It's been there 20 years or more. I mean, Jesus. Well, and so just to, just to finish, um, I want to just one last question, which was you're turning 44 in September, right? Jesus Christ. I just turned 41, so we can we can talk about it. Um, is this where you thought you'd be, you know, with a two-year-old daughter and, the work that you have behind you, like, is this good or is this this overshoot? Is this undershoot? Like, where where are you now from where you thought you might be back in two thousand two in Kansas City? Oh, I have far overshot.
4: Hmm.
0: Good. Uh, uh, but also, like,
1: I like doing it. You know, I mean, I have a book coming out uh, in November that is really weird that I'm really proud of. And it's, you know, they're not, it's hard to think of an immediate comp, you know, and, but, uh, no, it is uh, half memoir, half reported profile. Huh. And, uh, well, I mean, it's, it's half about the bourbon Paffy Van Winkle and half okay. about me. But I spent a couple of years with Julian Van Winkle off and on who makes it. And so it's, you know, craft, inheritance. It's a lot of these things we talk about, but I don't know. Like I'm just, I'm really proud of it. It's not, you know, people have a hard time describing what it is, which I hmm. like. <laughs> uh, Low concept. It, yeah. It's just, anyway, like, so it, it just feels like, I don't know. The work is still challenging, still rewarding, still hard. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm, you know, I think much less about sort of where I'm going now and just much more about like, well, what's the next story?
4: Hmm.
3: Do you do that when you finish one story? Are you starting the next one right away? Or are you one of those guys?
4: Oh, yeah. 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 You seem like it.
1: I don't, when it, I don't give, when it runs, I don't really don't give a shit. I mean, I'm not kidding like I'm really not like the peak of joy for me is when my editor and I close it. in some ways all the other shit's just annoying yeah so I, gotta I, think... go, and I gotta go now be the face of this thing for a couple of days and what I really want to do is work right
3: uh, right this was so much fun I've been a fan of yours forever It's it's it's
1: been fun that we've had an opportunity to
3: chat and hang out
1: thank you so much oh of course man anytime uh, talk to you soon
3: you got it. Bye-bye.
2: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for the show are George alarcon Swaybe, Dolgan Media, myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler, and our audio editor is Anda Salaji. Thanks for listening.